0: Listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 154. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you so very much for your time and your attention today. A big shout out and thanks to everyone who follows the podcast on Spotify. We are now over 700 followers on Spotify and nearing 500 weekly downloads of the podcast online. And I can't be more grateful uh, for all of you for listening to the podcast, for all of your feedback and encouragement. Thank you for sharing the podcast with others. Thank you for carrying on the conversation after you turn the podcast off. It shows me that there is an interest in these topics and that there are other people who want to have the conversation. And again, for myself, especially the past three years, it's very encouraging because I'm sure you've experienced uh, similar feelings at different times where you wonder if it's just you or maybe it's just you and a close circle of friends that want to talk about these subjects. But I assure you, there are plenty of us out there who want to discuss philosophy, theology, fighting, what it means to be a good neighbor, a good man or woman, a good husband or wife, a good father or mother, just a good person all the way around. And as Miyamoto Musashi said, what makes a complete warrior is not simply the mastery of the weapon. Being able to fight and fight well and, like Musashi, duel and never be defeated doesn't actually make a great warrior, according to him. It's actually a tripartite. Thing. It's threefold. It is one mastery of your weapon, but it is also mastery of philosophy and mastery of art. So the complete warrior, the whole warrior, dedicates him or herself to this threefold pursuit to know your weapon, to know philosophy, that is how to live well, and also art. Because without imagination, without creativity and curiosity, our weapon, our training in that weapon, our philosophy is limited by our imagination. And therefore, if we do not allow our imagination to run free, if we do not indulge our curiosity in the form of art, we are limited and therefore not whole. But likewise, if we pursue art and philosophy, but we don't train, we don't practice with our weapon, we don't discipline ourselves to become the master of this martial art. Well, we also suffer because I can't talk you to death in a duel. Well, I could probably do that, but not everyone has the gift of of mouth vomit. And so you should learn how to use your weapon masterfully. But likewise, without philosophy, mastering one's weapon, being an artist, being curious and creative is also then limited because philosophy, the art of living well, of being a good person, is also vital to what makes a whole warrior, because why are you fighting? What are you fighting for? Who are you fighting for? What is the purpose of art? And what is the purpose of pursuing art? This is where philosophy comes in. And so it's not simply a matter of, I'm really good at jujitsu or Muay Thai, or I read philosophy and I think deeply about the meaning of life, the universe, and everything, or I've devoted myself to poetry, painting, illustration. It's all of it combined that makes one a whole person, let alone a whole warrior. And so when I do discuss topics on this show, there's somewhat uh, a randomness to it, for sure. I wake up in the morning and think to myself, what have I been talking about the most in the past week, two weeks, or month? But likewise, then I ask, in relation to this show and its mission, that is, the intersection of conflict and belief, how can I discuss these three areas in a a balanced way so that I'm not always reading military leaders on how to fight? Or I'm not always reading Friedrich Nietzsche, for example, on philosophy? Or always indulging my creative side by pursuing discussions about arts or how I use medicinal mushrooms, for example, to heal my brain and my body so that I can actually remain in a, in a relatively constant flow state so that my creativity is, you know, high all the time, but rather, how can all of those things be combined into this podcast and into these subjects so that we gain not only a holistic view of ourselves, but also a holistic view of our, our homes, our neighborhoods, our communities, and our world? Because I think what I see most often, and maybe you see this too, is how narrow people are in their worldview whether it's through willful ignorance, naivety, or just a refusal to accept reality. There's this open rebellion against objective reality going on, at least in my culture in the United States at present, where it doesn't matter what the facts are. What matters is that this is how I feel, this is my truth, and therefore everyone else must agree with me that this is valid and relevant and true because I decided that. But what if we take a step back? What if we detach? What if we say to our emotions, okay, I need you to just kind of sit over there on the couch for a moment. I need to look at this like a detective, like a forensic psychologist or a journalist, independent journalist. So let's just look at what's going on and let's just judge it as best we can objectively and put aside our presuppositions and our prejudices. And then once we've done that, then re-enter and say, okay, Here's my judgment upon this topic, about this topic. Whether it be critical race theory, whether whether it be neo-Marxism, Maoist revolutionary ideology, whether it be the philosophy of Nietzsche or Heraclitus or the Stoics, whoever it might be. But to be able to train ourselves to step back and observe and then step back in and say, this is what I've observed and this is my perception of this person or these things so that I can make a more informed choice for myself, for others, in regards to this topic. And so that being said then, today, I want to enter into the conversation about education and learning, because education and learning are not the same things. As I've talked about before, I have two bachelor's degrees, a master's degree, and I earned my PhD in history, church history. I spent an inordinately long stretch in Academia. And what I learned from those, well, decades actually, if you think from kindergarten through my PhD work, I went to school essentially with brief stops along the way from the age of five to the age of 38. And again, I wasn't constantly in school. I moved around a lot, worked different jobs, but I was always coming back to school. And in that time from five to 38, what I learned in the end was. I didn't want to have anything to do with academia because it kept me in a kind of static existence of this stasis not necessarily in a state of perpetual pubescence but when you're in academia the thing that you are studying and the conversations you're having around that topic with other academics it creates a siloing effect at least in my personal experience so that This is the most important thing in the world, and talking about this thing is the most important conversation in the world, and anyone who doesn't want to enter into it with you isn't important or as important as those who are having the conversation. And being an expert on a particular topic and being able to read and translate and speak in six or seven different languages and having read thousands of books and journal articles and written thousands of words and On and on and on. It creates, for myself anyways, and for those that I was with, I noted it created a sense of hubris, arrogance, overconfidence, because it's a very intoxicating atmosphere to be in if reading and studying and writing and lecturing and debating is your thing. And so when I got out of academia and I took the call to become a pastor— one of the first things that I did was to take a step back and ask, do the people in the congregation that I serve, who are largely blue-collar people, people that work with their hands, do they care about my educational qualifications? Do they care about how many books I've read? Do they care about the journal articles that I've written? Do they care about any of that? And in the end, what I concluded was, no, not on a practical level. They could appreciate that I have a lot of education, a lot of knowledge, but my inability to communicate with them and express myself in a way that they can understand in language that they use, what I determined to do was to uneducate myself in a certain sense. That is, cut the cord between myself and academia and recognize that although I had gotten a very substantive education, my learning was wanting. I didn't know how to help change the axle on a tractor. I didn't know how to milk a cow. I didn't know how to field dress a rabbit. I didn't know how to mill something or frame a house. And these are all things that the people that I serve in my church do on a regular basis for their jobs. And so the way they talk, the way they live, the way they work, was very foreign and alien to me in the sense of I was coming out of academia. Now, I grew up on the Iron Range of Minnesota. I grew up around people that worked with their hands. I grew up rough, and I grew up with that language and with those traditions and so forth. So it wasn't completely foreign to me. It wasn't unknown. It was just simply when I went to school, I decided to leave behind all of that and pick up then this new toolbox, and speak in the language of academia and carry myself in that way within the context of those, that ethos. And so I've then spent the last 15 years attempting to detach myself from academia in such a way that I can still write academically and speak academically when I'm called to do so, but I'm much more at home simply talking like the people that I live with and that I serve. And so, I think this is important, though, that again, whether it be in the realm of of martial arts, whether it be in the realm of philosophy, or even in the realm of creativity in the arts, I think it is important for us to distinguish between what an education is that is, going to school, fulfilling the requirements of the curriculum, the expectations of your teachers, your advisors, the school that you're going to, the knowledge you acquire, versus learning. And so, For you, again, I'm constantly trying to improve how I put the information in front of you. I actually wrote a manuscript, a 10-point manuscript, with the help of ChatGPT, who does all of my bibliographic citation work for me, which makes my job a lot easier because then I don't have to spend days running down uh, citations. Because I don't know about you, but I read so much in so many different areas. I read theology, philosophy, I read about fighting, and then I'm preparing you know, classes for jujitsu jitsu and Muay Thai constantly, preparing Bible studies, so I'm reading the Bible and translating and exegeting constantly, and then there's the theology books and da-da-da-da-da-da, right? It, I have so many quotes and citations in my head that when I want a specific bibliographic citation, I have to spend hours trying to track down where I read that at because I'm reading so much all the time. And chat GPT is a godsend in this area because I can simply say, hey, chat, where in Neil Postman's works is this quote? And it'll spit it out for me in like a second. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. I just saved myself hours of work. So if you are in academia or you're going to school, I highly recommend using ChatGPT to run down your bibliographic citations for you. It's, it's so helpful and makes work so much quicker and go by so much faster. So that being said, what is then, in my opinion, wrong about public education, compulsory education, as it used to be called before they rebranded it. Because, of course, public education isn't public. It's government-funded education. Therefore, it's a state-run educational system. And that's why it's compulsory. Because, just like anything, compulsory means the threat of force. The only reason that people started sending their children to school, and you can read this in John Taylor Gatto's books in particular, is because the governor or the mayor would send out a militia to take children from their parents by force and march them to school. This happened, for example, in Massachusetts in 1887. There were gunfights over children going to school where the governor would send out militias with guns, and the parents would then fight with the militias with their guns to prevent their children from being taken from them and forced to go to compulsory education. And one of the interesting side notes that, that Gatto talks about in his, one of his lectures is the literacy rate in 1887 was almost, what was it? It was over 91%, somewhere between 91 and 98% of all the children in the colonies, especially Massachusetts, were literate. After compulsory education was instituted, the literacy rate never again rose above 91%. In any state in the United States, to the present day, by the way. Literacy in the United States right now is somewhere between like 60 and 71%, depending on the state. But think about that. Before compulsory education, before our children were forcefully taken from us by the state to be, quote-unquote, educated, literacy was almost 100% when the parents taught the children. After the state took over, literacy never again rose above 91% anywhere in history. And again, that tells you a lot about how the government works and what its expectations are. Education, as far as I'm concerned, is not about learning, it's about education, which is why it's called public education, not public learning. And of course, the state has an agenda, it always does, and it's not a benign institution. I live in Minnesota. The teachers' unions in Minnesota, the teachers' union in Minnesota, is openly and explicitly pro-BLM, pro-neo-Marxist, pro-critical race theory, And therefore, their agenda is right out in the open. In fact, in Minnesota, the teachers' union has said to the schools, stop hiring white teachers. It's discriminatory and it's racist. And those white teachers then who are near retirement are told, retire, so that we can replace you with someone of color. So there's an openly racist system in my state that is perpetuated by the governor, the legislature, and the teachers' unions. And it's discriminatory against one particular group of people based on the color of their skin. Therefore, when you go to school in the state of Minnesota, you are going to be indoctrinated in these different ideologies that are perpetuated by the government of the state and the teachers' union of the state, and therefore the school systems within our state. The other side of this that I hear from parents who want to talk with me and my wife about how we homeschool is, well, I could never do that, or it seems so much work. And here's what I can say simply. When God gave you your child, he provided you and equipped you with all of the skills and abilities necessary to teach your children. And building off of that, what I hear the most is, Well, we can't run a homeschool or a co-op like the public schools. But that's the point of homeschooling is to not do that, to not perpetuate this, in my opinion, fundamentally flawed and broken curriculum within the public school system. The purpose of homeschooling is to equip your children to learn, not to educate them as the public schools want to do. And therefore, one of the big leaps that you have to make when you start to homeschool is you have to, again, detach from this indoctrination that you are a part of, which is, well, if you're going to teach and you're going to be a quote-unquote homeschool, it has to be a miniature version of the public school system, when, in my opinion, nothing is further from the truth. Once you break free of that kind of brainwashing, or kind of narrow thinking, it opens up the possibility for you of all kinds of options as far as schooling goes. Again, this is the art side of this, the curiosity, the creativity. And again, in a day and age when the entire knowledge of the world seems to be within reach of an iPad or an iPhone, there's no barrier to entry if you want to homeschool your kids. If you don't believe that you possess the gift of teaching, For example, when I met my wife, she was going to school to get a double degree in psychology and uh, childhood education. Again, I've spent most of my life in academics. We're both now licensed teachers. I'm a licensed principal through the state of Minnesota. I went through an accreditation process. It was very painless and very easy. And all you need is a bachelor's degree and you can go through with the process. So I am an accredited teacher. I'm an accredited principal. Within that context, though, there's the freedom to say, This is how we want our children to learn. So, for example, right now, it's very nice outside. It's spring in Minnesota. My children have a science unit, so they're going to go outside. They're going to go out in the back acreage. They're going to go around in the woods. They're going to go around the garden and they're going to learn about life science, about environmental science. They're going to choose something to study, whether it be a plant or an animal. We're going to deal with cells. We're going to deal with the cardiovascular system of mammals. We're going to talk about germination. Like all of that happens by simply walking out your back door. They're never going to get that experience in school. They never did. They don't have that freedom to learn and to pursue their curiosity. Because there is no such thing as one way to learn. There is no such thing as one kind of curriculum that is the only kind of curriculum. That's a myth. It's a lie perpetuated by the public education system because, of course, the state wants all of us to conform to their model, which is actually based on the Chicago factory model, which should, that should tip us off immediately, that the original model for public education, for the education of children, was based on the Chicago factory model. That is, here's how we set up a factory, and here's how we make sure that everyone is a good factory worker, And so to prepare them to work in factories, we're gonna create a school system that looks exactly like a factory. So when they graduate from school and they come to work at the factory, very low bar for entry, they're already prepared. And that factory model from Chicago was adopted from a Prussian educational model going back over 200 years now. And so once you start to learn the history of education and how it was implemented in this country, you discover very quickly, actually, that something's not right in the state's approach to education. And as we all know, from the moment you set foot in a classroom, you're basically being taught a certain set of doctrines, obedience, docility, testing, and all throughout school you're being told, okay, we're going to get you ready to go to middle school, then we're going to get you ready to go to high school, then we're going to get you ready to go to college, then we're going to get you ready for your master's program and from your master's to your PhD program. Life is simply about graduating to the next thing educationally. And the carrot that is always dangled in front of us is a job that pays really well. House, cars, vacations, all of it, right? The entire purpose of education in this, in this culture is make money. That is, perpetuate the economy. Whereas in other countries... The purpose of education is literally to learn and to become a well-rounded person. Now, that's rarer and rarer all the time. But again, if we're not well-rounded people, then it makes it that much more difficult for us to actually enjoy life as God intended it and to enjoy life in such a way that we're not constantly looking at our receipts and judging ourselves by our financial success or our material prosperity. So what's so wrong about public education? Well, number one, public education is designed to create obedient citizens. That is, from the time you're old enough to listen, which is a Cat Stevens line. What is that? Is that from Wild Wild World? Oh, no, Father and Son. Father and Son. From the time that I was old enough to listen, yeah. So anyways, I digress. Cat Stevens, Father and Son, T for the tiller man. Such a good album. Oh, it's so good. Public education is des- designed to create obedient citizens who follow orders without questioning authority. So, John Taylor Gatto, the OG of homeschooling, I love this guy. I highly, again, I highly recommend you read his books. They're so good. And my favorite book that he wrote is called Dumbing Us Down <laughs> The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling. And Gatto argues in Dumbing Us Down. Public education is not designed to teach children to think critically, but rather to be obedient and follow orders. We are not taught to be generals. We are taught to be foot soldiers. We are not taught to think. We are taught to obey, specifically authority in the broadest general sense. This is why, by the way, when the governor or the president says, stay at home and don't leave your house, you just do it without questioning. That's why we're told, listen to the experts, which is just another word that's interchangeable with the term authority. Listen to the experts. Why? Well, he's got a lab coat on, so he must know what he's talking about. We have to do what he says. Why are we listening to her? Well, she wears a scarf, and she looks very dignified, and she's got all these initials after her name. So we have to listen to her. Why do we do this? Because we're taught from the age of four or five years old onward to listen to authority, to obey authority without questioning beginning with our teachers, beginning with the principal, school guidance counselors, and on and on it goes. That's why when you question an authority figure, whether it be a teacher, a police officer, an expert, their initial reaction is usually one of, who do you think you are talking to me that way? How dare you ask me questions? Because they're not used to being questioned. They're not used to being challenged because we're all taught to be good, obedient little children. That's why when authority figures talk to us as adults, they talk down to us and treat us as if we are juveniles. It's a part of this whole curriculum. And so as Gado says, schools are intended to produce through the application of formulas, formulaic human beings whose behavior can be predicted and controlled. There it is. To me, that's one of the most important sentences that I've ever read about education, that schools are intended to produce through the application of formulas, formulaic people, whose behavior can be predicted and controlled, which is then supported by Neil Postman, another person I cannot recommend highly enough to you, I love amusing ourselves to death. It's a phenomenal book. It's a little dated because it was written in the early 80s, I think. But it's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend Postman to you, too. And again, all of these things that I'm reading are in the bibliography for the manuscript that I'll post on the website and hopefully on Anchor FM. So Postman in his book, The End of Education, which again is a great book, he writes, the central task of education is to implant a will and a facility for learning. It should produce not learned, but learning people. So he writes, the central task of education is to implant in a person the will and the facility for learning that then should produce not learned, that is, I read that book, I know, what I, I know everything I need to know about that subject now but instead a learning person. That is, I'm never done being a student. When we talk about martial arts then, for example, if it's jujitsu, Muay Thai, wrestling, kickboxing, boxing, whatever it might be, you're never done learning how to be better at that martial art. And as soon as you think that you know everything there is to know about that martial art, well, that's when you begin to stagnate. And that's when, of course, you are kind of locked in time as a martial artist because you're not open to other opportunities to learn more and to enhance your technique and to become a more well-rounded fighter. This is why I study kickboxing and Muay Thai and boxing and wrestling and even a little bit of judo within jiu so that I'm not just someone who practices jiu-jitsu or someone who trains Muay Thai, but rather that I'm a mixed martial artist. George St. Pierre, famous UFC champion, once noted, when asked, what does it feel like to be the greatest fighter, or at least arguably one of the greatest fighters of all time? And he said, I've never actually thought of myself as a fighter. I see myself, I think of myself as a mixed martial artist. I'm simply a student that continues to learn and improve as a martial artist. And I think that's important because, again, he's looking at himself holistically. He's saying within the martial side of the house and the arts side of the house, I'm never going to master this because there's always something more to learn. And in my opinion, the greatest martial artists are those who are always hungry for more information and how to integrate other martial arts techniques into their martial arts. This, of course, was the driving principle behind Bruce Lee's martial arts, Jeet Kune Do. And if we never settle... If we never think to ourselves, well, that's that, I've mastered that topic, what's next? At least for myself personally, and maybe for you, just the process of learning itself is exciting. It's intoxicating because you find a new story, you find a new outlet, or someone who has something to say to you and teach you that you've never heard before. That's phenomenal. One of the great things about being a student of any discipline is discovering new voices within that discipline who are saying things, teaching things, expressing themselves in a way that you go, oh, why, why haven't I read this before? How, how has this person escaped my notice? And that excites you to keep learning, to keep moving forward, to keep wanting more. Give it to me, right? Become voracious for information because it is intoxicating. It's exciting. When I discover a new poet or a new author or a new artist... I'm 51, I'll be 52 this summer. I'm still discovering people within genres that I've read for 20 or 30 years. And I think to myself, how is it within this genre that I'm obsessed with that I have not heard of Harry Cruz, for example? How did I not know about Harry Cruz? So now I'm devouring Harry Cruz because he's within that kind of Southern, Gothic, raw, visceral writing style that really turns me on. So just when I think I've discovered all there is to discover within the genre that Flannery O'Connor is associated with, who is one of my top three authors, I love her, I discover Harry Cruz in this little corner over here, hiding behind Flannery O'Connor. And I say to myself, wow, you have a lot in common with Flannery, but at the same time, you're completely different. And so there I go. And through Harry Cruz, you discover other authors and other poets and other people that you want to listen to and talk with. Same thing happened to me in relation to Langston Hughes and the Harlem Renaissance. It's an endless, it's turtles all the way down, as they say. And so if I say to myself, well, I've read Flannery O'Connor, so I know everything there is to know about this genre of literature, for example. I've cut myself off from the amazing rewards that are waiting for me if I just keep asking the question, who else is out there in this genre that's talking? Who else have I not discovered yet? Let's go talk with them. Let's have a conversation with them. Likewise, when I read something like Beowulf, one of my obsessions, every time I read it, I discover something new in it. Same thing when I read the Bible. Every time I translate, every time I read the Bible, something new. So I'm never done discovering, I'm never done learning what I can learn from a text that I may have read hundreds of times. So we don't shut ourselves off to the possibility and the opportunity to continue to be learners rather than saying, yeah, I know what I need to know. Let's move on, right? So that's number one, is that what's so wrong about public education? It's designed to create obedient citizens who follow orders without questioning authority. Don't think critically. Don't ask why. Don't indulge your curiosity right? We covered that subject in the last semester. Now it's time to move on. And then number two, public education is a form of social control that perpetuates the status quo. That is, it makes everybody the same. Again, see number one, obedience. Number two, that's how we perpetuate the status quo. That's how we make sure that everyone is predictable and controllable. We don't want individualists. We don't want unique characters running around. We want everybody to drive the same color car, live in the same kind of house, wear the same clothes, watch the same TV, drink the same soft drinks. That's how this works. So again, going back to Gatto then, he argues that public education is a tool for social control that maintains the status quo by teaching children to accept the existing social order without questioning it. In other words... Well that's just the way it is. Well, why do we vote for one of two parties' candidates? Why are there not three or fifteen different candidates? Well, that's just the way it is. Why why do we eat this food that has or fifty or sixty different ingredients and fifteen of those, I don't even know how to pronounce that word. That's just the way it is. Right? Why do we put sunscreen on to go outside in the sun when for thousands and thousands of years People were in the sun every day, all day, and never got skin cancer. Eh, That's just the way it is, right? That's what we do. What is that? It's conformity. How did we all fall into that that groove on the record? Education, being taught to be obedient and obey authority, even if that authority is a commercial that's lying to you about the product, even if it's a politician or a political party that's lying to you. I'll put it this way. If you have a friend, and every time that friend comes over to your house, he or she lies to you, how long would you remain friends with them? And how motivated are you to keep inviting them over to your house when you know that every time they walk through the door, they're lying to you about their life or what they did today? You wouldn't. You wouldn't be friends with them because you can't trust them. And yet you keep voting for people that lie to you every single day and exploit you every single day for 40% of your income so that they can take that money away from you by threat of force and then spend it on whatever they feel like. Satisfying lobbyists, satisfying corporations, laundering that money through Ukraine or Afghanistan or insert third world country here. They lie to us every day, all day, and yet people continue to vote for them. Why? Conformity, obedience training. They don't question it. They just do it because it's just the way it is. Again, Gatto says, schools teach exactly what they are intended to teach and they do it well. To be a good Egyptian and to remain in your place in the pyramid. And then going back to Neil Postman, Postman supports this by saying, the purpose of education is not to make men and women into doctors, lawyers, and engineers. It is to make them into responsible citizens who understand and cherish a democratic way of life. Don't forget to vote. It's your responsibility as a citizen. If you don't vote, you can't complain. Well, to quote George Carlin, if you don't vote, you're the only person that gets to complain about everybody else who voted and perpetuated this broken, vile system that exploits and takes advantage of us. And as George says, they don't give a shit about you. They don't care about me. It's a big club and you're not in it. Our responsibility To the state and to each other is to be a good Egyptian and to know your place in the pyramid. And you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer? Well, that's on you. That's not on public education to do that. Their job is to make you cherish democracy, one person, one vote, mob rule, be a good citizen. What does that mean? Put your hand on your heart and pledge your allegiance to the flag, which is absurd when you actually think about it objectively. It's just a means of control. Wear your mask. You have to wear your mask. It's for everyone's safety, even though we all know that paper masks present the spread of nothing. But we have to do it. Why? Obedience. Be a good Egyptian. Again, where I live at Minnesota, hospitals and clinics require everyone who enters the building to wear a mask, and the receptionist is more than glad to demand that you put a mask on. Why? Obedience. If you question them, they literally say, I'm just doing my job. Those are the rules. And of course, when you bring up all the people throughout history, especially the 20th century, who made the same claim, we were just doing our jobs, they get upset and they demand that you wear your mask because you've broken their dialogue wheel. You're not obeying. In fact, we even have a term for these people now NPCs from video games, right? Non player characters. And these are people that just exist within the game to interact with your character when you walk into their sphere, whether it be, oh, I'm going to walk into this house or I'm going to go over to the saloon or I'm going to go fight this monster. These, These NPCs don't exist independent of you in the game. Likewise, in real life, people run around with dialogue wheels that they've been taught, this is how you respond to question A. This is how you respond to statement B. Well, if you break the dialogue wheel, they don't know what to do, so they just revert back to their programming, which is, I'm just doing my job, you have to do this, it's a mandate, it's required, it's the law, da-da-da-da-da. And then when you challenge them to think critically, they can't. They don't want to, because it's painful, because it's not within them to do that. Why? Because school has taught them, you're an Egyptian, this is your place in the pyramid, be happy do what we tell you. Everything will be fine. And so, they're not the anomaly. You are. They're not the problem. You are. Everyone else who came through the door put their masks on. Why can't you put your mask on? Well, I don't actually have a mask. What? Yeah, I don't don't have a mask. I've, I've never had one. I don't own one. Well, we have them for you. Well, these are ineffective. They don't... The CDC, the NIH, they've all stated publicly that these don't prevent the spread of covid or really any disease okay but it's required why is it required if it doesn't do anything uh, it's it's required and it just around and around you go and then eventually they kick you up and refuse you service and so one obedience training two social control that perpetuates the status quo Third, public education is too focused on standardized testing and memorizing rather than critical thinking and creativity. My daughter suffers from this. She's 16 going on 17, and she is an artist. She has a very, very fertile mind, extremely imaginative. She has to email her college professors because she's going to high school and college simultaneously. She has to email her college professors and ask, what do you want me to write on the essay? because when she goes off and she writes an essay and, it, and she exercises her critical thinking skills and uses her creativity as we have taught her to do, she fails the, she fails the essay, she fails the, the assignment. And this frustrates her because there's no parameters, it's just write an essay on what you've read describing X, Y, or Z things. So she does that and then she gets an F or a D because she didn't do what the teacher expected. So we've taught her, before you write, go to the teacher and say, what specifically do you want me to say? And the teachers now are more than happy to say, here it is, here's the five points that I want you to address in this essay. Don't think, do what I tell you, do what I expect you to do. So now she gets B's and A's because she's learned the rules of the game, which is don't think, don't, don't get creative, just regurgitate exactly what the professor says, this is what she wants to hear from you in this essay. And here's her criteria for an A project. And once you learn the rules, which is this isn't about you thinking or expressing yourself, this is about you doing what I tell you to do, then you can be successful. And it's a great lesson for my daughter about life, which is your professor, the way that she interacts with you, that's pretty much everyone that you're going to meet on the job. So you have to learn how to play within the rule set if you want to get a job. (laughs) Or you just want to be able to move through society without constantly scratching your head or slamming against a wall or crying. And so Ken Robinson, another author, another um, educational theorist, in his book Out of Our Minds, Learning to Be Creative, argues that public education has become too focused on standardized testing and memorization. This stifles creativity, and it stifles creative thinking. And so he writes, the standardization of education is a denial a denial of the diversity of intelligence and the possibility of human creativity. That is, I need you to solve this problem for X, whatever X is. Now, the teacher says, there are a multitude of different ways to solve for X. Go. Well, now you have unleashed the student's creativity to try and solve this puzzle. Versus the teacher saying, I want you to solve this problem for X There are three possible answers, and here they are. Go. Well, that doesn't encourage creative thinking. That encourages us to go, okay, which one's the right answer? There's only one right answer, and there's three possibilities. Or maybe it's all of the above, D. And the problem with that, again, is I'm not learning how to think. I'm not learning how to exercise my intelligence. I'm simply learning what are the rules of the game that have been established by the teacher, Again, that's education, that's not learning. And it stifles intelligence and creativity. Notice the reoccurring theme in the first three points. Critical thinking and creativity is squashed. So a subtext of this entire thing is, if you're sending your children to public school, or even private school, they're no better where I'm at. There's very little differentiation. But if you send your children to school, do not falsely assume that this school is going to encourage them to be creative and to think for themselves and to problem-solve. That is not the purpose of public education and a lot of private education. You are sending them to learn how to obey authority, how to be good citizens, that is, to be good Egyptians and know their place in the pyramid, and ultimately how to take a test. And yet, once you graduate from high school, If you choose not to go to a four-year college or even a vocational technical college, you just want to enter the job market and, and get a job. What does standardized testing benefit you, right? How does that prepare you to work in retail and interact with people? How does that prepare you to farm or work with your hands as a carpenter? Does it? Maybe it does. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud on this point. But what I do know is that it does not encourage you to think for yourself and to be creative. Which is why houses all look the same nowadays. It's why cars all look the same nowadays. Why? Because why would we want to go back to a time when cars were a multitude of colors and shapes and sizes? Why would we want our vehicles to be an expression of our personality? Why would we want our houses to be painted differently than the houses around us? Maybe you live in a cul-de-sac or in a development, a recent development, right? Where everything is kind of a shade of beige. Imagine if you painted your house purple or, God forbid, multiple colors. How would your neighbors around you react if they woke up and came out in the morning and your house was purple and all of their houses were beige? What would happen if you came home and your house or your car was canary yellow and all their cars were white and maroon and silver. What would happen? Right? And this is again it's so easy to fall into. We all do this. I've been watching this YouTube channel where they go around and interview homeowners that are artists and their homes are art. And they've painted them and designed sculptures and all kinds of things. And I think it's amazing. I'm an artist, so I see this stuff in my imagination just is a wildfire. And my initial thought is, we need to repaint our entire house. But then the practical side of me says, oh, that's going to require so much time and effort and money. I guess white's fine. Maybe I'll just paint the door. (laughs) But that's what I mean, is it's easier for all of us to seek out the lowest bar for entry, the least stressful way to live. And so if the house is white or beige, okay, fine, whatever. Who cares? The floor, the carpet, it's all different shades of beige or mauve or cream and so is everybody else's house and all of our cars are one of three or four colors and they're all basically the same shape and design. What does that hurt? Well it doesn't hurt anybody until you start to realize it's all a part of social control. It's all about maintaining the status quo and making everybody the same because again if everyone is the same it's easier to control them and it's easier to keep them going in a direction that the controllers want us to go in. We don't need someone driving around in a 68 Mustang. We don't need someone painting their house purple. We don't need people expressing their creativity and thinking for themselves. We need everyone to conform. One of the jokes that I often make as a pastor is, do you know what the 11th commandment is? And everyone looks at me with, you know, a quizzical look on their face, confused. But pastor, there's only 10 commandments. I said, oh no, there's an 11th commandment. What will the neighbors think? Right? We're all raised to believe that other people's opinion of us is more valid than our opinion of ourselves or God's opinion of us for that matter. What will the neighbors think? The 11th commandment. Versus, well, in the most broadest sense, Painting my house purple or yellow or polka dot, that affects no one. And it makes me happy. Every time I come home and I pull in the driveway and I see my house in rainbow colors, it makes me happy. It actually inspires me to be more colorful and be more creative. But we can't have that. We can't have that. Everything has to be standardized. Everything has to be streamlined. Everything has to be right angles. And so as Postman writes, Neil Postman writes, the real crisis in education is not test scores, but in the destruction of imagination. There it is. On the news, every year, especially around the time when state legislatures meet to decide the budget for the state, we hear a lot about standardized tests and about how the students aren't doing well and different sectors of the student body aren't doing well based on their gender or their skin color or their socioeconomic status. And therefore, we need more money for education. More money, more money. It's always more money. As if schools aren't a money laundering operation for the state either. Of course they are. But you notice what we never hear is kids' imaginations. They're they're just being destroyed by public education. We have to do something to stop the destruction of imagination and critical thinking and creativity for our kids. You never, ever hear that. It's always, we need more money, we need more testing, we need more programs. That is, we need more conditions in our schools to stifle creativity, to stifle imagination. We need to get those test numbers up because that's how we measure the amount of money we're going to get from the state every year. It's all about standardized testing. I've told the story before on the podcast, but I think it's been a minute. My oldest son is a genius. We had him tested. He's an actual genius. And so when he was in elementary school, he attended a bilingual school. So half the day was English, the other half of the day was Spanish. 60% of the student body was Spanish-speaking Mexican immigrant children. And the children that he went to school with were the first generation Of English-speaking people in their families. So all of their parents were first-generation immigrants. Got to know a lot of them, helped them get their citizenship, love them to death. They're some of my best friends, especially because they make me my favorite food. But that being said then, the standardized test scores at that school were in the 40 percentile for the state because you're expecting kids who are learning English to take standardized tests which are in English. Well, my son would often get 100% on the standardized tests, which then pulled up the entire school's test scores. So when we pulled my son out of school, the principal himself wanted to meet with us to beg us to keep my son in school. And he admitted to us in private, we need him in school because his test scores actually pull up the entire student body along with this handful of 20 other students. The only reason they wanted him to stay in school was because the state funding that they received was less than all the other schools in the state because of their test scores. It's a money laundering operation. It's a pyramid scheme. And my son was helping them make more money. Again, one of the trips that tipped us off to the fact that we needed to pull all of our children out of school. They didn't care about him as a person. They didn't care about his Intellect. They didn't care about encouraging him and um, pursuing his interests. No, it was, well, he's in fourth grade and he thinks at an eighth grade, ninth grade level, but he's in fourth grade, so he has to do fourth grade work. So he was bored out of his mind. So he would go to school, stare ahead, and then come home and go off and read Plato in fourth grade or play chess with me and study, you know, historic chess games. And he was bored out of his mind, so we had to pull him out. We had to, because as a parent, when you see your child disintegrating in front of your eyes, when you see the destruction of his mind and his hope and his dreams, I think as a parent, it's your responsibility to pull them out before they're completely destroyed and they become a shell of a person. And I know, especially for my two younger boys, my 11 and 12-year-old, because they are free spirits, because they are so creative and so thoughtful, the fact that we pulled them out of school in elementary school, that my youngest daughter, who's five going on six, and will never set foot in a public school for her education, when I see those three in particular, and how they've thrived not going to school every day, and how smart they are, my my five-year-old is now graduating from the second grade into third grade work, because we allow her to work at her own pace. And because we allow her to do that, she is on fire for learning, comprehension, reading and writing, math and science. She's going crazy. And we can't give her enough schoolwork. She just gobbles it up. And on top of that, she's getting almost straight A's in all of her subjects. And the only reason I mentioned the The grades is because we are accredited through the state because we want our kids to get a diploma and not have to go through any rigmarole if they decide they want to go to college, which none of them do at this point. But we're accredited, and so we have to turn in grades every semester to satisfy the state standards. A side note, by the way, in Minnesota, if you homeschool, your children are still on the district roster, the district roles for public school. So... My children's school district gets money for all of my kids, even though they've never set foot in one of the schools. Again, pyramid scheme. Totally legal. Totally legal. (laughs) And so when I see my children do their schoolwork outside, in the backyard, at the picnic table, when I see them wandering around in the woods hunting for mushrooms, learning about environmental science, I look at that and say to myself, well, there you go. There's a well-rounded human being. There's a child who's going to grow up to actually be something. I don't know what that is, but they will. Because we've taught them to think critically. We've taught them to think for themselves. We've taught them to ask why. We've taught them to indulge their curiosity and their creativity. And we've imparted to them the importance of learning and the difference between learning and education. And so we don't deny their intelligence. We don't deny their creativity. We encourage it, actually. And we don't care about their test scores. Test scores signify nothing other than your ability to memorize information. But the fact that they can hold a conversation with me and talk to me about what they're learning and express themselves in such a way that I can hear, they actually understand the subject. And they're actually interested in it. That's everything to me as a parent. Because at least, again, for myself, One of the greatest sins that I could commit against my children is to squash their mind and their heart and to tell them, I'm sorry, but you can only be whatever is within this particular box and you can't be anything outside of this box because this is who you are and this is where you're going to go in life. I think that's a terrible thing to do to a child. And so number four, then public education is failing to prepare students for the real world. Charles Murray, for example, in his book Real Education, argues that public education is failing to prepare students for the real world by focusing on abstract academic skills rather than practical skills that are relevant to the workforce. And he writes, there is a mismatch between what schools are teaching and what the economy demands. I don't entirely agree with his thesis that the entire purpose of education is to basically perpetuate the economy, but... He's not wrong either. That is kind of the purpose of public education. But it also then within that rule set of that game called the economy, the oikonomia, if my kids want to be doctors, if they want to be engineers, if they want to be something outside the norm, like they want to be survivalists who take people on whitewater rafting trips down the Amazon or on safaris across the Amazon or across the... The African Savannah. They have to bust out of the expectation of, well, here's your list of possible occupations based on your test scores, based on where you're going to graduate within your class. Here are your possibilities. This is what you should go to college for. Because when I was in high school, my junior and senior year, we had to go to career day, we had to take tests, and then we had to sit down with our advisor to tell us, hey, this is what you should go to school for. Well, I didn't take those tests seriously. So when I talked to my high school advisor, I said, well, I want to be a paleontologist or an archaeologist. And he said, according to my test scores, I could either be someone who works with their hands, like a carpenter, or a janitor. That's what he told me. He said I wasn't smart enough to be a paleontologist or an archaeologist. He said that to me. My junior year of high school, he said to me, I'm not smart enough to be one of those things that I want to be because according to my test scores, I should be a janitor or a carpenter. Think of what that does to a 16 or a 17-year-old person's brain when you're told you're too dumb to go dig in the dirt for bones. Right? Think about that. You're too dumb to get a trowel and a broom and dig around in the dirt for fossils. Instead, you should actually pick up your broom or your trowel and, and go build a house or sweep up after the kids when they leave school in the afternoon. That crushed me. It did. It crushed me. My entire senior year was that statement playing over and over in my head. And so I thought to myself, well, why am I even bothering to try to get good grades when I can, my, he just said it, you know, I'm going to be a janitor. And so I decided to just be a bad boy and to be a rebel against everything. And so my senior year of school, I got detention so many times. I got kicked out of school, during school, so many times because of that. And it followed me around for a very long time. I'm 51. That was said to me when I was 17. And at a certain point, I turned the corner on that, and now I use it as rocket fuel to prove to that guidance counselor You don't know what you're talking about. And what you said to me and other students that I talked with after the fact, you destroyed our dreams. You literally took us because we trusted you. You're an authority figure, going back to number one. You're an authority figure, so we trust you. And you told us that we're too dumb to pursue our dreams. And this is what we should go to school for or hope for. And so all through my art program, all through my music program, all through my travels, that was always in the back of my head. You're too dumb to do this. And again, I used it as propulsion to do those things. And I think even to this day, it still is in the back of my mind. You're too dumb to start your own martial arts gym. You're too dumb to be a best-selling author. You're too dumb to start your own business. You're too dumb to be this or that thing. And I say to myself... All right, I'm so dumb, how come I qualified for Mensa? <laughs> my, my advisor never bothered to ask, did you take this test seriously? And if not, why? If he had just asked that question, we could have had a conversation about why I didn't take the test seriously. And the reason is because it's a stupid test. I'm 17 years old. I don't even know what I want to do with my life. All I know is I want to get out of this little town I want to go on adventures and explore the world and learn about what I want to do with my life. That's what I wanted to say, but I wasn't asked about my thoughts. And I'm sure if I had said that, he would have said, no, you have to go to college. And so I think we have to be very, very thoughtful and aware, especially when we talk to children, whether they're our children or other people's children. We need to be very, very conscious of the fact that the words that we speak to them are not like a leaf on the wind. They're like an anchor. They're like a 10,000 pound weight hanging around their neck. And that weight can either lift them or bury them. Because they look up to us as adults, they actually respect our opinions. And if we say, well, you're just dumb, you know, that's this is. They're, that's going to bury them. That's going to pull them down into the abyss of self-doubt and self-defeat. But if we say to them, this is amazing, and you should definitely keep doing this, and if you do, you know, when you're done, show, show me more. I want to see more of this. That's a weight that can lift them off the ground and give them wings and carry them through their whole life. But we don't think about these things Enough because we're so conditioned to think within these boxes that have been provided for us by public education. And so we're not prepared for the real world. We're not prepared to think outside the box of, well, this is how you pay the bills, so do this, right? What if, for example, your kid came home and said, I want to work at a coffee shop for the rest of my life. I love making coffee. I love interacting with the customers and the other people that work at the shop, and maybe someday I'll buy the shop or I'll open my own coffee shop. Do you as a parent say, no, you have to go to college? You have to get a bachelor's degree. You can't just open a coffee shop. Well, why not? What if that's their passion? What if that pays the bills? What if that gives them a sense of satisfaction and they're happy doing it? What is wrong with that? My opinion is you encourage them to do it and you ask, how can I help you achieve your dream? And if along the way they decide, you know what? Turns out this isn't for me. Okay, cool. What's next, right? How can I, as your your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle... Your mentor, how can I help you with the next thing that you're gonna get yourself into? Right? I'm not gonna bail you out. I'm not gonna sit there to hold your hand because then I'd be like the teachers at school. But how can I encourage you? How can I advise or counsel you and provide my wisdom as an older person who's failed a lot in their life? How can I share the, those those moments with you and impart the knowledge that I've learned from my lived experiences to you in such a way that you can benefit from them. I'm not going to say no, but I am going to ask, have you thought about this yet? Because before you go into business, here's something you have to think about, especially when it comes to serving the public with restaurants, coffee shops, and so on. It's a very risky enterprise, so you better be sure about what you're doing. Or maybe just start off small. I actually, when I was in, um, where was I? Tennessee, maybe? Tennessee, Kentucky, somewhere around there. We went to a coffee shop that was in a garage that they had rented and it was one of those storage garages so it was like one of like 50 garages that were lined up next to each other and they rented this space out and they opened it up and it had like 20 seats and it had a bar with some more chairs there stools one of the best coffee shops I've ever been to ever they made the most amazing coffee And they were successful within the context of what they wanted to accomplish at that moment with their business. And it was just two guys. They loved coffee, they loved roasting coffee, and they loved making coffee and hanging out and talking about life, the universe, and everything with their patrons. And it was one of the best—like, the next day, I woke up and said, we have to go back to that coffee shop right now. (laughs) And so we did. It was fantastic. But they simply said to themselves— And my friend who's a roaster, shout out to Gillespie, Coffee by Gillespie, check it out. It's, again, roasted to order. It's my favorite coffee. It's my go-to. I won't drink any other coffee. I even got my church to drink it. And churches are notorious, especially in the Midwest, for drinking cheap, disgusting coffee. And so I love his coffee. And it's reasonably priced, too. It's not overly expensive. So, of course, he completely geeked out on this and was pumping them for information because he, at that time, was thinking about starting his own roasting business. And through that experience then, he's enriched, and he actually went off and started his own coffee roasting business. So his day job is pastor, and his side gig is coffee roaster. And the reason is because I actually told him, you need to do this. I'm actually one of the first people to say to him, you need to do this because you're really good at it. Well, I don't know. Don't think about it. Just do it. Buy a small grinder, sell to your friends, and then build from there. My wife is doing that now. With her business, Mama Anita's um, Apothecary. And she makes CBD cream. She makes tinctures. She does all this stuff. And I should actually plug her. I've never done it actually, but you can check her out on Instagram, for example, and Facebook, Mama Anita's Apothecary. And that's the point is I just tell her, listen, start small and give away your product for free. Again, I was a drug dealer so <laughs> at one point in my life. So I know how this works. And I'm like, just give the product away and if it's a good product, they're gonna wanna pay you for it. And sure enough, people started wanting to pay her for it because it worked so well for them and they enjoyed it. And then she got into making gummies. And once we got into mushrooms, she started making mushroom gummies and on and on it goes. And now she buys this little thing and she buys this machine and she has to increase the production of this and she has to buy more of that. My wife was told, Right after we got married, actually, it was the first year we were married, That because she at the time she was having um, grand mal seizures and she wasn't able to focus or concentrate and it was really bad. So she went for testing to figure out what was going on. And in the end, it was trauma from her being molested as a child and it was manifesting itself in this way. Um, it was also a spiritual attack. But when she got done with her test, very similar to what I had gone through in high school, the... Um, behavioral therapist that she was going to looking at the test results said the best that you can hope for and this is a quote the best that you can hope for is to be a housewife that's what she was told my wife who was a double major in psychology and um, elementary ed was told the best that you can hope for because of your brain and the way that it, it is being affected by these things and because of your ADHD the best that you can hope for is to be a housewife And my wife, I've never seen my wife cry harder than when she got in the car after that appointment. And my words for that behavioral therapist were not kind. And I said, okay, do you believe that? Well, no. I said, are you dumb? I said, no, of course you're not dumb. You're hyper intelligent. You're way more intelligent than I am. So what are we going to do about this now? We're going to use what that therapist just said to you as fuel. And you're going to go to school, and you're going to do what you want to do. And so she went to nursing school, and she graduated with honor. She was actually the uh, salutatorian of her class and had to give a speech on stage in a theater in front of an entire group of people, which for her was harder than anything she had done in her life to that point because she's classically trained. She sings opera and arias. And so she's very comfortable singing in front of people, but speaking, no. And... She graduated, and she got her job, and she became a nurse supervisor for an entire wing of a group home. And she was in charge of, like, 20 other nurses. And she worked with the administration to improve the conditions for the people that lived there and for the nursing staff. And then from that, she decided she wanted to be a housewife. She wanted to stay home and raise her children. So she did. And then she decided, I want to do this. I want to be a healer. I don't want to just be a nurse who pumps, you know, medication into people. That's why she quit her job originally, because she wasn't allowed to, again, there it is. I I worked my way around to this point. As a nurse, she was not allowed to be creative. She was not allowed to think critically. She was required to follow protocols that were set by the administration. And as she said to the administrator, your protocols are gonna kill people. And a week after she quit, someone died on her wing because the woman was left alone for four hours. No one checked on her, this elderly woman, and she choked to death on mashed potatoes. Yeah. And of course my wife is heartbroken because she warned them and she quit because she didn't want to be there when it happened because she knew that she couldn't live with herself. As the nurse supervisor, it would ultimately have been her responsibility for what happened to that woman. And she couldn't live with herself if that had happened. So she quit. But from that, she became a housewife. And then from that, she said, I'm going to go into business for myself. And I'm going to be a homeschool teacher. And I'm going to be a music and vocal teacher. And I'm going to do all these other things. And every single thing that she's decided to do, she has thrived within that. And within her definition of success, she is successful. And so for myself, with my different businesses and my different pursuits, and my wife with hers, We're providing examples for our children that if you imagine it, do it. Just have a plan. So now my oldest son is starting his own business, Quiz online. He makes more in one day than I make in an entire month. (laughs) It's ridiculous. But all we've said is, how can we help you do this? And yet simultaneously say, but if you're going to do this, you also have to take responsibility for your own bills, taking care of yourself, helping take care of the family and the house, because if you're going to live with us, you have to continue to participate. You're not going to just live here rent-free and do whatever you feel like. And he's more than happy to do that. And so he does pay his own bills, and he does help with us, with the bills, and he has help take care of his siblings, and he does help with their education, as does my daughter and on, the, on down the line, because we foster creativity, we foster critical thinking, but we also encourage our kids to be curious and explore and experiment and fail. Because we all know when we say to ourselves, I'm going to try that, I'm going to do that, there's going to be failure, whether it's you know a small thing or a catastrophic failure. It's going to happen. But when you have people around you who are there to support you and encourage you, failure stings a little less and the fall won't break you because there are people there to help support you until you get back on your feet. And again, I think that's the purpose of education is to give your children a safe place to return to when they've gone on an adventure, and they've got questions, they've failed, they've fallen on their face, whatever it might be. And so again, education fails to prepare students for the real world. Fifth, public education perpetuates inequality and reinforces existing power structures. Again. I'm not a big fan of Paulo Freire, but I think he's got a good point here in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Yes, he was a neo-Marxist. Yes, I understand that. I've read all of his works because I went to college too. But I do think he does make some salient points in his books, even though I may agree with him overall in his political ideology. So that being said, education perpetuates inequality because it enforces power structures, class structures. If you can afford to go to the best schools, You can afford to get the best education. And even if it's not the quote-unquote best education, it does set you up to connect with other people who are from a certain socioeconomic class. And through those networks of relationships, you're more likely then to get that summer internship at that law firm or to go to that prestigious law school. Whereas someone who grows up impoverished, whose teachers are paid $28,000 a year, who are overworked and underpaid and simply wrecked by the end of the day who comes from a situation where they don't have a dad at home they don't have people supporting and encouraging them when they fall down and you have all these temptations on the street and in the neighborhood that want to lure you away from school and from getting to that law firm we all know what, who i'm talking about because even where i grew up at in the iron range of minnesota I saw that constantly of all these kids slipping through the cracks because they grew up in um, government housing. They grew up on welfare and food stamps. They grew up without a dad. They weren't encouraged. They weren't supported. And therefore, they were treated as second-class citizens, even by the teachers in our school. And it actually created this inheritance where you saw their parents were treated this way, then their kids were treated this way, Then their kids were treated this way, and it created this entire culture of poverty and of thinking of yourself as a helpless victim and as someone who was, quote-unquote, poor. Not materially poor or financially poor, but you as a human being are poor, and therefore, this is your life. And everyone in the community around them treated them this, this way. I saw it all the time. You know, I had a friend, Marvin, and Dad was a chronic alcoholic, beat the shit out of Marvin on the regular. The house was a piece of shit house because he didn't take care of it, didn't care, lived on welfare, lived on food stamps. So by the time Marvin was in eighth grade, he was already behind. He was at a negative. And everyone in school treated him that way because they knew who he was. They knew who his dad was, the way he dressed, the fact that he would show up to school with bruises and cuts and cigarette burns and his hair was dirty and he didn't take care of himself and of course he doesn't care about school because what what is school to him and the people around him his peers treat him as poor his teachers treat him as poor he's attracted to the other kids in school who come from the same home and they're the ones who smoke and do drugs in the in the bathroom and party on weekends and ditch classes they're the ones who get caught shoplifting And you see it. That was Marvin's dad when he was in eighth grade. And here's Marvin in eighth grade doing what his dad did. And we don't know how far back that goes generationally. And we don't know how far forward that's going to go. Because again, when I see on social media guys and girls that I grew up with, and I see their kids, and their kids are following the steps of their parents. Having kids at 14 or 15. Washed out at 20 or 21. Working at the cafe. And that's their life. And if it's the life they choose, hey, God bless them but it's not, and I know that because I've talked with them. When you go to school and you don't have opportunity, right? And again, I'm all for equality of opportunity. I'm not for equity in the least, but for equality of opportunity, I think every child should have the same opportunity to succeed regardless of what zip code you live in, right? Those structures that exist function as an instrument that says to children, this is as good as you can expect it to get, or on the other side of the house, the sky's the limit for you. And this will transform the way that we think about education and about success, educationally speaking. It just does. And one of the things that I appreciate about Frary is that he would teach illiterate people how to read the newspaper so they could not only learn to read, but also to think critically about the world in which they lived. So they could read about politics. They could read about economics. They could read about their society and their culture and make informed decisions about the trajectory of their life. They didn't have to work at a finca. They didn't have to be owned, so to speak. They didn't have to essentially be sharecroppers. That they could start their own farms. They could grow their own coffee. They could sell their own coffee. But without an education, none of that was uh, afforded to them. And the finca owners weren't going to educate them. Again, I've been in Guatemala, i stayed there for a month, and I learned in that month there's no uh, motivation for the Finca owners to teach these people how to start their own businesses, because that's going to cut into the Finca owners' bottom line. And so simply by teaching them to read and, and even write, you're giving them the opportunity that is inexpressible to someone who's grown up knowing how to read and write. And so sixth, then, public education fails to recognize the diverse learning styles of students. Howard Gardner, Multiple Intelligences, writes, Our educational system is based on the assumption that there is only one way to learn, and it is suited to everyone. But this isn't true, he says. And as John Taylor Gatto writes, Genius is as common as dirt. Let me repeat that. Genius is as common as dirt. We suppress genius... Because we have not yet figured out how to manage a population of educated men and women. This goes back to social conditioning, it goes back to obedience training. A population of well educated men and women is an unruly population. We don't want geniuses. This is why we treat geniuses as outliers. This is why we actually discriminate against geniuses. I see it all the time. What do we want? We want lever pullers. We want hole punchers. We want people who march in order from their house to the factory and back. Do what you're told. Eat what you're told to eat. Say what you're told to say. Well, what about that one over there? He seems to be experiencing a moment of free thought. Crush that, right? And then seven, public education is too focused on competition rather than collaboration. There we go, right? Even within our homes, we teach our children to compete against each other rather than collaborate with each other. We set up these artificial lines within families where fathers compete against sons, daughters compete against mothers. Everybody's competing against each other for something versus, well, but we're a family. Why aren't we working together towards common goals? Why aren't we learning how to work together and collaborate? Why am I talking down to you? Why are you expecting me to fix your problems? And so Alfie Cohn, in his book No Contest, The Case Against Competition, argues that public education is too focused on competition, specifically standardized tests and grades, which then creates a culture of winners, that is the A students, and losers, those who get Cs, Ds, and Fs. So this focus on competition leads to students being more concerned with grades and their rankings within the student body than with learning and understanding the material. Again, it doesn't matter if you understand the book. Take the test, pass the test, move on. Additionally, it can lead to students being afraid to take risks and make mistakes. Again, I have a friend who's a teacher at the college level, and she teaches literature. And when she introduces the curriculum at the beginning of the semester and she hands out the bibliography for the books that they're going to be reading, The very first question, every semester, without fail, she says, the first question is always, will this be on the test? Do we have to know this for the test? And when she says, this is a literature class, this isn't about tests and grades, this is about reading, it's about digesting and comprehending and having conversations about great works of literature, to improve the way that you think, to improve the way that you see the world, to increase your curiosity and creativity about things, and hopefully to encourage you to be more literate. And then another student will raise his hand and say, is what you just said, do I need to write that down? Is that going to be on the test? She says that students are so brainwashed into taking tests that even when she says there will be no tests on the material that you read, their first concern is always, you're kidding, there's always a test, there's got to be a test. And so when she has them write an essay instead of taking a test, and she says, as long as you can demonstrate that you read the book and understand the basic premise of the chapter, I'm going to pass you, I'm going to give you an A. Their circuits don't connect at that level. There's no such thing as everybody gets an A as long as they demonstrate their knowledge and, and understanding of the text. No, there's a hierarchy, A through F, and I need to know how to get an A and avoid having an F. It short circuits their brain. They don't know what to do with that. And because she refuses to change, the other professors who do require tests are upset with her. Because of course, the students who are like, wait a minute, this is different. I like this, I like this teacher. She's, she's doing something different. She's setting me free from the bondage of grades to simply learn. Well, we can't have students finding out that there's alternative ways to be tested, that there's alternative ways to approach the subject, that we don't have to take tests that require a grade. And as one teacher said to me in our class when I was in college, first day of class, he said, you all have a 4.0 in this class, and now it's up to you to fail. I couldn't understand what he was saying. So he had to explain it again because we all asked, what? what?" And he said, you all start off with a 4.0. You're all A students because I assume that you are all intelligent and thoughtful and that you will do great in this class. Therefore, you all have the maximum amount of points possible in this class, 400, let's say, for the semester. It's up to you though, then, to maintain that level of um, success, right? And so if you fail, it's, that's actually your, that's your choice to fail because you don't have to now not you know no one in this class is starting off at zero and then you work your way up to a nope everybody starts off at the top and it's up to you to work your way to the bottom and i think only two people got below a c in that class that semester and it was a great class and he was a great teacher and so to get below a c in that class was stunning to me it demonstrated that these two students just didn't care for whatever reason it didn't connect I think I got like a B plus in that class because, again, like I said, he was a great teacher. He had a great attitude and philosophy about teaching. He presented the material in a way that was engaging and it was almost impossible to fail his tests for that reason. And so, is it good to have competition? I think it is, actually. I think competition encourages the best in us because a little stress, I think, is actually positive. But if it's all about A's and F's, if the entire weight of... Your experience in this class is, hey, if you get an A, you get to go on, but if you get an F, sorry, you got to repeat the class. I think that's a negative stressor. I think that's a negative way to look at education and learning. And so, yes, I do think competition is healthy, for sure, but I think it has to be competition within a certain set of parameters, which again allow for creativity, curiosity, critical thinking, and being able to say to the student, you know what, that's not in the curriculum, but actually, I think that's a really great question. I want you to go off and do a research paper on that. And I'll grade you on that rather than on this essay that everyone else is writing. I've had those teachers too. And they're my favorite teachers. Like I've talked about on the show before, my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Pelstring, when I would get in trouble for being hyperactive and talking with other students and not paying attention and being disruptive, my punishment was I had to stay in from recess and I had to draw. I had to draw pictures and then he would put them up on the wall. And then he would say, hey, you know, when Donovan was in for recess, he drew this picture. And what happened is other students wanted to stay in from recess so that they could draw and paint. And so he would let them do that. And he would eat his lunch at his desk in our classroom. And suddenly, instead of just me being, quote unquote, punished for my hyperactivity, there were six to eight students in a class of 32 or 34 who now were inside with me at lunchtime. And we were drawing and we were painting and we were being creative. And those things went up on the wall, and it was like it was like a trophy for us that Mr. Pelstring thought enough of our art to put up on the wall and go, that, yeah, we gotta display this. This is amazing stuff. And if it wasn't for Mr. Pelstring, I don't know if I would have ever become an artist or a musician for that matter. Because Mrs. Olson in sixth grade, she was the same way with me. She always punished me up. And even when she had to wash my mouth out with soap, because I decided to push buttons and see what words I could say and which words I couldn't say. The punishment was always up. You're going to be in the play. You're going to be the narrator of the Christmas pageant. You're going to be Tom Sawyer in our class play. Because I'm not going to punish you by not allowing you to be a part of this class. But rather, I recognize your hyperactivity. Your need to talk constantly. (laughs) Here here we are. Um, These aren't negatives. But within the context of this classroom and what i'm trying to accomplish with these students it is disruptive and it is a negative so let's harness that energy for something positive and constructive and again to this day i'll never be able to thank her enough for what she did for me and in my experience i've had a handful of teachers maybe 5 total in my entire life like that and and i hope that you've had numerous teachers like that that you can't count the number of teachers that you've had that basically helped shape the person that you are today. I don't think that's the norm, unfortunately, but I think we all have those teachers that essentially said to us, you are so much more than you give yourself credit for, and I see so much potential in you. How can I help build on that? And so, eight, then, public education doesn't address the needs of individual learners, right? Neil Postman, Going back to the end of education, writes, public education fails to address the needs of individual learners, instead focusing on creating a standardized curriculum that is taught to all students, regardless of their interests or abilities. Again, I saw this with my son. His interest, they even created a whole curriculum for him. It was fantastic. In fourth grade, they created something called a flex curriculum that they then later instituted for the entire school so that the gifted and talented students Didn't have to wait around for the rest of the students to catch up to them. And then the students that were struggling didn't get left behind. So the teacher then would create pods and say, okay, all you gifted students, you're going to go over into your pod and you're going to do this work, right? At your own speed, flex learning. But when you finish your packet, you're now going to come and help teach the other students in class this information that you've already finished. So the gifted students would then work with the students that were struggling with the packet. And it encouraged then collaboration, and it encouraged the gifted students to not think of themselves as being better than the students who struggled, but rather as teachers who were working with the students who struggle so that everybody was succeeding together. And it was a fantastic, fantastic curriculum, I think, and a fantastic way to run a classroom. And again, to this day, my, my son at 20, going on 21, he still keeps in communication with his fourth grade teacher. So I don't know if it's something about fourth-grade teachers, but, yeah, he had a very similar experience to what I went through with my fourth-grade teacher. And actually, the fact that he is starting his own business based on, like, a quiz bowl, Knowledge Bowl type of curriculum, or format, I'm sorry, was, again, his fourth-grade teacher encouraged this. And because his fourth-grade teacher was running the quiz bowl and the knowledge bowl, and actually introduced Owen to the high school uh, teacher who was, you know, running that level of quiz bowl, knowledge bowl, And that's actually what ended up with my son taking it over once he got into high school and graduated from high school and then starting his own business. So yeah, fourth grade teachers, man. They're amazing. I love it. So Postman again states that the principle, the principle that we should educate each child as an individual is not a concession to human weakness. It's an affirmation of human dignity. There it is exactly. That sums up what I was just saying. The gifted students, the intelligent students are going to be put with the students that are not as gifted and talented or just can't grasp the material as quickly as these other students. Not to say, well, you're weak and they're strong, but rather to say, no, you have, you are worthy, you have worth, and you deserve the same opportunities that these gifted students get. And so these gifted students are going to walk with you and encourage you and help you so that you also then understand you're not an anchor weighing us down but rather you're in this with us and you're just as gifted and talented as they are just not in this particular area and they're not as gifted and talented as you in the areas that you're gifted and talented in so let's work together let's build up each other together and let's lean into each other's individual skills and talents and abilities so that we all succeed and therefore this approach to education requires individualized attention from teachers, and a curriculum that is more flexible and adaptable. Exactly. Nine, public education is too focused on memorization and regurgitation of information. This goes back to standardized tests, right? We need, and this is now Ken Robinson out of our minds, learning to be creative again. Ken Robinson argues this point. It's too focused on memorization, too focused on regurgitation of information, doesn't develop critical thinking skills, doesn't develop problem-solving skills, And again, I agree with Robinson, this form of education is outdated and irrelevant to today's world. Why? Because all the information that I need is literally available to my fingertips. It's on my iPhone, it's on my iPad. We need an education, he writes, that focuses on the development of creative and critical thinking skills and on cultivating the imagination and the ability to ask questions. Exactly. And lastly, number 10, public education is too focused on testing and assessment. Notice the same theme running throughout these 10 points, right? No creativity, no critical thinking skills, conformity, and it's all, it's all rooted in memorization and testing and competing for the best grades, right? Again, factory model. Compete for that promotion, get that you know 1.2% raise, ask for you know extra sick leave days every year, ask for more vacation time, get the corner office, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's, ah, it's just soul-crushing to me. So Diane Ravitch then, in her book, The Death and Life of the Great American School System, writes, public education is too focused on testing and assessment which has led to a narrowing of the curriculum and a focus on teaching to the test. Famous statement, teaching to the test. Why are we learning this? For the test. What test? The standardized test. Why does that matter? Because that's how we get funding from the state. If we do bad at the tests, we don't get more funding. If we do better on the test than we did last time, we'll get more funding. So, teaching to the test. And what does it squash? Creativity and critical thinking. It doesn't teach students how to be responsible, it doesn't teach them how to be engaged citizens. And again, this approach to education would require a complete shift in focus from testing and assessment to a more holistic form of evaluation that takes into account a student's overall growth and development. Again, God made each one of us unique with our own skills and abilities and gifts. And all of us individually were good, but together we're amazing. And by creating a curriculum, by designing a school system, that says to the individual, you don't matter, and says about the group, that's all that matters. But it's a specific kind of group. It's group think. It's obedience training. It's memorize this. It's teaching to the test. It is not inspiring creativity. It doesn't inspire critical thinking. And so it actually dehumanizes us and reduces us to a number and to a a dot on a, a test sheet. That's all we are then. We're a number. And when we are reduced to a number, when we are reduced to a statistic, when we are assigned a dollar sign, a dollar value to our name, we are no longer valued as human beings. We're no longer worthy of being treated with, as a person with dignity and self-respect. We're just a cog in the wheel. We're a lever puller. We're a clock puncher. And so the reason that I spent so much time on this today and going through these things and talking with you about these things is hopefully to inspire or motivate you to consider your own education and the positives and the negatives, to ask the question, what's so wrong about public education? Maybe your answer is nothing. Maybe your answer is everything or somewhere in the middle. But again, agree or disagree with Gatto, um, Postman, or any of the other people, Ken Robinson and Ravitch and the other people that I read, think about your judgments and your presuppositions and your perspective of education versus learning. What is missing? What has been taken? What can be replaced? And how can we better create an environment for our children to learn in where they actually thrive? And as Gatto said, genius is as common as dirt. Your child is a genius. Whether you believe it or not, whether you've been told that or not, whether advisors or teachers or family members or others have said, eh, this is the best your kid can hope for. That's not true. It's not. It's just not. What can we do as individuals, as parents, as a population? What can we do to create the means for our children to succeed in ways that maybe we weren't allowed to succeed in or to open up avenues of exploration, and experience that weren't open to us. What can we do to produce the next generation of students, of adults, who can think for themselves, who are curious and creative and can judge people, judge laws, judge the state, judge the churches, judge the culture in such a way that they can say, no, I'm not going to buy what you're selling. Or, yeah, I can go along with that but they're informed and they can do it because they're informed and they can think for themselves and they're literate. What can we do? And I think just having the conversation is the first step. It's always the first step is to have the conversation, in my opinion. And we can build off that. We can go from there. So all that being said, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your ear. Thank you for your encouragement. We're all in this together, man. And I hope that this was beneficial to you and helpful. And if it is, amen to that. Continue the conversation offline. Share the manuscript with others. It's there for you on the website. It's going to be there at Anchor FM. And so, yeah, take care, space monkeys. We'll talk to you real soon. Peace.